Welcome to the Podcast Against Disease special limited series thing, Humanity in the Plague Times. Given that COVID-19 has had such a dramatic effect on pretty much everyone's lives at this point, I'm reaching out with my co-hosts to try to get as many perspectives about how COVID-19 has affected them as possible. And today we actually have our first guest in the series, and uh, Sina, would you care to tell the listening public who you are and uh, what you're about? Sure. Uh, first, thanks, Cody, for having me on today. I really appreciate it. My name is Sina, and I'm a medical student at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. But this year, I took a little bit of time away from medical school to uh, get a master's in public health at the Harvard Chan School of Public Health. So my studies at this time have really like intersected with the real world and I thank you for having me to to chat with you today. Yeah, it's uh, it's my pleasure. So in your role as a public health student at this point, your entire day-to-day was all about your coursework and trying to hone your skills, is that right? That's correct. Yeah, and last year this time if someone asked me to tell them what a public health model or a disease model was, I would not be able to do it. So um, getting the opportunity to understand what's going on on the science background of our public health response to this disease has been a unique opportunity and has helped me deal with some of the uncertainty that I think all of us have to deal with throughout this time. Yeah. And it must be really interesting to see while you're learning about the nuts and bolts of public health, what is likely to be the biggest public health crisis of our lifetimes, certainly the biggest one so far, what are your thoughts on how that information is being rolled out and how it's being packaged? And I guess, have you had any thoughts about the communication aspect of the public health data to the public? Sure. I think from a public health standpoint, whether it's epidemiology or biostatistics, there are fantastic people working on disease models and studying this specific virus who are doing incredible work. And they're putting out their research in a really incredible pace. And that's really heartening to see. One thing that I've seen is kind of intersection of science, journalism, and communication is, I think as a society, we are not, we're not fully able to communicate the information we find through our research and science to the general public who actually needs to know this information. It's really easy to talk amongst ourselves as public health students or professionals and use all the technical terms that barely mean something to us, but to the general public and science journalists covering this, they may not mean as much. And I think that uncertainty has really bothered both our government officials, people who are genuinely looking for information and looking for some direction. So the policy, science, and communication intersection has not always gone smoothly from what I've seen. Yeah, and that is distressing given that, especially with something as fast-moving as COVID-19, policymakers, assuming they're all acting in good faith, need solid information to act upon, and they're certainly not 
they can't be expected to speak the technical jargon of every field with which they interact. So it's got to be concerning to see that the people who have the best grasp or the likely best grasp of what's going on with the spread of the illness are not able to effectively convey that information. And that's actually something that we've covered as an area of interest on the podcast before is just this idea that science is really good at talking to other scientists, especially within the same silo, but really seems to fall short when it comes to really explaining to society at large why finding X, Y, or Z is important, and more importantly, where it stands in the greater setting of what we know so far. And it seems like we often get into this problem with science journalism where the popular press article just states the finding and gushes about it and doesn't really put it in context. So it's hard to not look like we're constantly flipping back and forth when in truth we're probably developing an evolving story that takes all past data into account. Absolutely. And I think what you mentioned earlier about how fast moving this crisis has been is a really is a big hindrance to us being able to interact and communicate with each other. We are social animals and not being able to deal with people face to face has just creates more anxiety and internal tension. Whereas like other slow, slower moving crises have given us time to somewhat digest what's going on. And personally, even as someone who understands the medicine mechanism of how this disease affects people, I still am concerned and fearful about it affecting my family. Thankfully, they're they're okay and they're following all the social distancing guidelines. But I can definitely see how for a lot of people, these are probably the most stressful times that I've experienced. And I hope we can all work together to get through this. Yeah, certainly. The really strange thing about these times to me is that we have to pull together not only, you know, in 9-11 aftermath, for example, we all kind of pulled together as a country in the aftermath of something, but the damage was essentially done and it was more of a grieving process. This, we're watching it unfold. We don't know when it's going to end and so not only do we have to provide moral support for the people who've already suffered, but we have to change our lives for the sake of people who have yet to be directly affected. And it's unclear how well we're going to be able to accomplish that. It definitely seems like a lot of people are pulling together. I see lots of masks, lots of social distancing, and a general attitude that participating with this lockdown is reasonable. I'm sure people are going to start to chafe as time goes on. And I don't necessarily want to go too far into waxing philosophic. Sina, I'm wondering what your opinion is on if there's anything public health officials, students, experts, people at every level with public health know-how. Are you aware of anything that they could be doing differently to be more effective in helping everyone understand this crisis and react to it? I think we, this goes back to, we, we touched on this a little bit earlier about how as public health officials or uh, someone who, as people who just are fans of 
science and fact-based journalism. It's really up to scientists to really improve their um, skills and standing in being able to communicate findings and their uncertainty about those findings to the public. I think that's a lesson for the long term. So I don't know how we can really act on that now. And that's also, it's really revealed how fragile and broken our our health system has been just from my relatively poor understanding of health coverage, testing, and health insurance that's work related to being employed. It has just really shown that our health system is in dire need of an overhaul and a fix. And um, it's sad that it's taken a crisis to really bring that into attention. Yeah, it's going to be very interesting to see what the healthcare discussion looks like in the aftermath of this when hopefully the emergency hospitals are finally shut back down and things begin to return to normal. My hope would be that it does become obvious that employment is not always going to be a given and people's healthcare does not I mean, healthcare needs do not go away if someone's not working a 40-hour-a-week job. So it definitely shows the problems with that when society is doing anything but flourishing to a fairly decent extent. Absolutely. So, Cody, on a more day-to-day response to public health and or response to this disease in a, from a medical and clinical setting, how have you had to change your practice and your work? And how do you see that? How do you see these changes affecting your work in the long term? Well, for me in psychiatry, I've been fortunate that most of my practice can be done remotely. Essentially, all of Hopkins has moved to as much remote psychiatry as possible. And we're still emergently trying to figure out the logistics of all that. I was heartened to know that as you might hope, clinical care trumps all, and we are currently making sure that we see patients even if we haven't figured out how to bill for it because, of course, the hospital getting paid is not the principal priority, and people's needs are not going to necessarily wait if someone's acutely suicidal or if someone is beginning to make progress on an outpatient issue or an inpatient issue of any kind, we have been empowered to do whatever we need to do to keep that clinical contact going. And I think that something that I'm sure is going to come up again and again is we're going to see just how much of healthcare and in fact, just how much of society at large can be conducted without the old daily commute. Because in terms of my ability to deliver care to patients, I don't actually have to leave my house to do almost everything. Now, there are exceptions, of course. If one of my patients has a chronic pain complaint, it would be nice to be able to do a physical exam, for example. But for something like depression, looking at someone on a video chat, I'm going to get basically the same information I would get from having them in my office. So in that sense, I have been fortunate Of course, so many other factors have changed, and I do worry about how many people are going to delay getting access to care, how many people are going to fall out of care because other priorities come up or they have fears about exposure, or that, for example, the acute stress of a crisis like this 
overwhelms their coping skills and leads them to do something maladaptive rather than continue uh, seeking out the care that, that might help them. So it's, I don't know how well that answers your question exactly, but certainly I think that we are learning how effective our communications technology can be in smoothing over this gap. If this same thing had hit in the 60s or something, a lot of the knowledge work that we can do now would have completely ground to a halt. I mean, I suppose we could still do telephone visits, but without the electronic medical record and things like this, it would be infinitely more difficult to achieve anything through that. Absolutely. And I don't know if people in your field or you personally have thought about new and innovative, creative solutions to addressing what I predict to be an influx or a much higher demand for mental health care once Hopefully soon we are able to come out of this and interact with society because I think isolation has been shown to be a risk factor for depression, mental illness, suicides. And what can students, family members, and the healthcare practitioners themselves do differently to to respond to this influx of issues that are going to come up? That's a very good question. And I think that the answer will, of course, differ a little bit depending on where everybody falls in their role in society and in their community. But as a general answer, I think pulling together and being peer support for each other is critical. I think it might be more important when normalcy starts to come back for us to ask each other if we're doing okay and try and have a little bit more of a dialogue about our mental state because... I think you're very right. A lot of people are going to come out of this with more of a need for at least psychosocial support, if not some sort of medical intervention for mood or anxiety or trauma, these kinds of things. But I think if we can understand the power that a non-expert can have to combat demoralization and be supportive, I think we could stave off a lot of harm potentially. Thank you. So you had mentioned that, of course, you're concerned about your family, Sina. How has COVID affected your life so far? I guess we're, what, three or so, four weeks in to the major sort of lockdowns and daily life changes that this has brought about. Yeah, I think as a student thousands, if not millions of students have transitioned from in-person education to online education. And I personally have found that to be very isolating and kind of demoralizing. So finding motivation to stay on top of things and stay engaged with the material has been not the easiest thing. I'm usually self-motivated, but when there are things of vastly greater magnitude going on outside, some of the day-to-day business as usual assignments and deadlines seem in their own way overwhelming. So that has been one way. Another way is, fortunately, this is the first time I've really had concerns about my parents' health. Thankfully, they're still staying at home and they're doing well. But I think many of us have parents in their 50s, 60s who are generally healthy, but as we've seen from the data, they are much more susceptible to the severity of that the disease can cause. Mm -hmm. And I think Going forward, uh, I, I want to be a better advocate for them and kind of help them navigate their healthcare and aging in a 
in a healthier way because I've, as far as I remember, my parents have been healthy and doing well. I never had to worry about it, but I can see how as a new generation, we have to kind of step up to, to the plate and not only take care of ourselves, but take care of our parents. And I'm sure a ton of people have already chilled in the care, caregiver role of relatives, family, and friends. And being exposed to that mindset for the first time has been a eye-opening experience. Yeah. And, and for it to come on so acutely, it's not as, you know, I think a lot of the illnesses that tend to befall older people have sort of a chronic course. So to turn a corner like this, where all of a sudden, so many of our family members and friends and, and ourselves to an extent are all at greater risk of death and serious illness. It's, it's got to be kind of a severe paradigm shift for everyone, I imagine. Yeah. And uh, to add to that, many of my friends this year have mashed into various residency programs across the country. And I'm incredibly proud of them and in some way jealous of them that they have the opportunity to kind of step into the role of providers. Fortunately, maybe the times aren't the best for new residents or interns to start working, but I wish I was there alongside them to provide care for my patients. And this feeling of somewhat helplessness and being stuck at home is, is something that I think everyone feels in a way. Don't have to be in healthcare to feel that. I'm really uh, encouraged by the massive grassroots and community support for collecting PPEs and food for food insecure uh, families and elderly that um, I've seen going on around my community in Boston and across the country. So in the toughest of times, I think people really show how tough they can be. Yeah, I think it instills a certain hope to see that people can put their differences aside and make changes with a surprising degree of agility, whether it's within healthcare systems, within cities, within states. And as you said, very much on the grassroots level, we are seeing a lot of things materialize. It is sort of sad to me that it takes a crisis of this magnitude for people to address things that have been going on to some extent for a very long time. Like, I mean, we've had food insecurity. We've had, I mean, in Baltimore, we have a massive homelessness problem. And I'm glad that these things are happening now. It would be nice if people do not forget that those people are going to continue to need support when this pandemic has cleared. Absolutely. Let's say you were the governor of Maryland and you had, you could just pass one law on your wish list or one policy to to make a huge drastic change to help residents of Baltimore and greater Maryland area, what would you want to do? Well, being someone with no real experience in politics, I would have a hard time knowing what's feasible. But from the standpoint of idealism, I would have to say something, I would push for something dramatic, either implementing a universal health care package or even a universal basic income package, because I think we're going to see the societies across the world that put a safety net in place or already had a good one in place are going to bounce back in ways that you're not going to see in societies that require or that sort of just permit individuals to fall through 
the cracks and are left to their own devices when they reach a point of desperation. And I, I agree. I tend to agree with you on that. Absolutely. And I mean, I'm so far pleased with how the state governments in this country have taken initiative in a lot of cases and done things that can't possibly be easy to do, essentially throwing the power switch on the entire state economy off and not knowing when and how to put it back on. I would not want to be the one to make those decisions, not with the the lives at stake and knowing that everyone who passes away from COVID after society is switched back on, that's going to feel like blood on on their hands. But I don't think there's ever going to be a point where you can flip it back on and everyone will be fine. Really tough decisions indeed. And just shows the importance of experience, level-headedness, and, and leadership that we really should expect from our from our leaders. And obviously, I'm not experienced enough to be making those recommendations or, or decisions, but I think while a lot of state governments have, have done pretty well as a country, there's still things we could do better. Certainly. And I think we were living a charmed life as a society for a very long time in that, I mean, we've known that this could happen. There was no reason that something like Spanish flu couldn't come back really every flu season. And I mean, we knew my uh, colleagues from my training program sent a group text a few weeks ago, and there was literally a slide from our microbio class first year in 2012 or 2013. I can't remember whether it was fall or spring, where the, there was a slide saying, oh, well, SARS is probably still out there somewhere, and if it comes back, it's going to be really bad. So it's incredible that we've had that level of awareness and still been this unprepared. I mean, it's hard to know, I guess hindsight's twenty twenty. whether we had an appropriate index of suspicion or whether we, or exactly how far back we should have been ramping up our efforts. Certainly. And so, you know, when this is all said and done, what, what do you hope that we've collectively learned from this pandemic and our response to it? And you can aim that at whoever you'd like, people in, in the community, people in your field, people in healthcare in general, whatever speaks to you. Well, I think if I could speak to just family, friends, and neighbors, I would say let us remember the the tough times that each of us experienced. This might be the first time that you're bound to stay home. These are it might be the first time we've had to look at our credit cards and our bank accounts to make sure we are able to afford food or healthcare bills. And really keep in mind that there are people who are living with those struggles, whether it's disability, food insecurity, or unsafe households that, or homelessness that are dealing with that every single day. And once this problem is as over as it can be, our neighbors are still going to need help. And I think this should be a learning experience for us to bring out the empathy that I know it's in all of us and express it through our votes, through our volunteering, through our charity and uh, open-mindedness. So that's what I hope people would hear. Uh, those would be great lessons for us to, to learn from. 
I appreciate your sharing that. Sina, did you have anything else you wanted to make sure that we covered? I know that certainly this is something that is going to be on our minds for a very long time. And if you'd like to return and talk some more, if we have more, depending on how long this goes, if you find that you have new reflections or updates or find something surprising about the way this unfolds, uh, you'd absolutely be welcome back. Thank you so much, Cody, for for having me on today. If I may make a shameless plug about a fundraising effort that I'm doing. Absolutely. So many of you have might have heard of the concept No Shave November mm-hmm. or Movember. Well, I'm doing kind of similar that for the last few weeks, I've been growing out my beard and raising money for the Greater Boston Food Bank to help families uh, dealing with food insecurity. Excellent. Participants can name my beard, pick the style that is eventually going to be trimmed or shaved. And if if I may drop the link to, to that fundraiser page uh, on the podcast notes sure. and for people to check out, uh, mm-hmm. I would really appreciate their support. Yeah, absolutely. We would uh, love to help out. And that sounds like an absolutely worthy cause given that I think some of the people who are going to be hit the hardest by this are the food insecure and housing insecure uh, populations. I know that's something we've posted related links to on our Facebook page is that as hard as it is to have to stay home, there are people who don't have a home to stay in. So it, I, I know it's hard sometimes to express gratitude in tough times, but there are a lot of people having harder times than, than the fortunate among us can even imagine, I suspect. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for, for having me. This was, it was great catching up with you, chatting with you, and I can't wait to hear more of your work. Yeah, I appreciate it very much, and I look forward to staying in touch. We uh, could always use you to join up with any Humanity Against Disease effort that suits you. We're always willing to spread to new places or engage in new facets of serving communities. It'll be my pleasure. Thank you.